You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends. Hey, you know, there's a handful of names in the world that when I say the name, that's, that's all the introduction you need. So today's guest, uh, Carrie Newhoff. Carrie, uh, just right out of the bat, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. Oh, it's good to be with you, Steve. I love the time that we have spent together. I have so much respect and gratitude for you and for what you do. You've helped me. You've helped a lot of my friends and just really thankful for you, man. Pretty much word for word what I was going to say about you. Like, what, what, <laughs> you know, Carrie has become such a, a significantly trusted voice in leadership. I know uh, I've heard from so many people. I've, I've gotten to be on your podcast and you, you, typically I'm on someone's podcast, I get almost no response. I go on Kerry Newhoff's podcast and people come out of the woodwork, like hundreds and hundreds of people reaching out to me. Uh, and that just, I think that speaks to how much trust we've put in you. And uh, what I want to say, Kerry, to you before I get into the interview is, I think that trust is because you have become a, a wise sage, like your mm. ability to listen and integrate information. So what we're doing today is Kerry's latest book, uh, at your best, those who listen to me faithfully, you know that I, I, I'm not in the habit of carte blanche recommending books. I, I know what that's like. Every guest comes on, you say, you have to buy the right. book. Best book I've ever read. Yes. Um, so <laughs> Every that, week. With that disclaimer, uh, if you want a book uh, not, that goes way deeper than time management, that really goes to emotional health through the tools of your calendar and observing your rhythms, this is the best book I've ever read on that. So oh, guys, wow. it's at your best. It's Carrie's book on, I'll, I'll just read the subtitle for us, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. Uh, it, it couldn't have come for me at a better time. I've just wrapped up literally this week having two full-time jobs for a year. <laughs> and uh, Carrie, here's where I want to start. Um, you give us so many practical tools, but what I've learned about myself is I tend to fall off the wagon, I think. I get sober for a while, and then it's almost like I'm just collecting things and I get out of control. Uh, what's been your experience with that? Oh, 100%. Uh, my life regularly <laughs> threatens to spiral out of control. And uh, that's part of uh, even writing the book was really clarifying and challenging for me. You know, a book, I don't know, other people write books, they get easier. I write books, they get harder. I was mm. telling you before we started recording, this was eight drafts. Like I'm not an eight draft guy. But having to clarify, clarify, clarify really helped. And I think the reason, you know, I hope this system works. It's worked for me for 15 years. So I'm yeah. like, okay, there's like half of my adult life. This has been a blessing to me. And I've figured it out as I've gone along. And we beta tested it with thousands of leaders and realized, oh, this is something. Okay, this isn't just like Kerry's weird little system he uses for himself. But this actually scales into other people's lives. But like, it's a constant challenge. Like I just got, I'll give you an example. I just got a text from somebody who I don't know that well. I think maybe we've met in person once or twice. And you know, that a guy who has my cell number and he's like, Hey, I want to give you an update on what's happening in my life. Do you have any time this week? Or I can send it to you, you know, via email. And you know, it's super guy, great guy. And I'm like, dude, I'm slammed this week. Like I... I just got a lot going on. 
And so I felt like a bit of a schmuck, but I'm like, can you just text me the details? He hasn't gotten back to me, but it's like how to lose <laughs> friends and de-influence people. Um, but I think that's the challenge, right? Digital um, communication has no manners. It's always sent at the convenience of the sender. Yeah. So that means for every leader listening to this, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you, you've just got inbound, 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 inbound. Like you and I remember the 90s, man. Inbound was hard. Yeah. Inbound was a knock at the door. Inbound was an email and you got 10 a day. And then, then you were a big shot if you got 10 a day. Well, now our problem's the opposite. Everyone's got access all the time. And um, it gets overwhelming. And then in a growing platform, like we've been really, really blessed with years of growth in what I do. And and some of that is very daunting. Like what you say about influence, it's like, oh, don't blow it. Don't blow yeah. it. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about that a lot and uh, going to counseling for that. So I don't blow it because I'm as sinful as any other human being. And I've got all the bad stuff in me and I got a couple of good things in me that Jesus deposited. Um, so, but we're just trying to deal with what do you say yes to? What do you say no to? And I allude to this at the end of the book, I allude to it, but it changes every three months because what was a great decision at the beginning of 2021 is not a very wise decision in terms of accepting things to do and assignments. I remember, okay, so get this. I, I've had the privilege of interviewing Tim Keller a couple times in the last few years. And uh, one before his diagnosis of cancer, one after. And I asked Tim, I said, you know, looking back on what you know now with your diagnosis, and it's, it's a serious diagnosis, like, yeah. you know, what are your reflections? And he said something that haunts me. He said, I have spent too much of my life doing what other people wanted me to do rather than what I felt God was calling me to do. And now in this remaining season, I want to focus on all those projects that I felt called to do that I didn't do. And that's the seesaw. That's the, you know, okay, I've, I've got this, you know, book to write, which is now published. And I got a course I'm writing right now. I've got a, I'm back in the pulpit for the first time in a year in no January, kidding. just for two weeks. Yeah, I quit. And then I came I back. Yeah, I connect us. Uh, Jeff said he wasn't going to ask me for a year. And then he asked, and I'm like, I don't know. But I feel like I've got at least 60 minutes of fresh content over two weeks. So, you know, maybe we can do that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to do that. Like I got stuff to do. And then every, uh, there's all this inbound, right? And with a growing platform, you get it. And I think that's every leader, whether you lead 100 people, 1,000 people, a million people. Uh, so I am constantly, the principles in the book are designed to be revisited monthly, quarterly, weekly, daily, if you're, you know, your hair is on fire. And, and then when I get back to, okay, here's what I'm saying no to, here's what I'm saying yes to, here's what I'm allowing on my calendar. Um, and, you know, for example, I, I was in California for a month. I, I was running then and I hate winter exercise, but California is kind of fun. And I haven't run in a week. It's like, I got to work that back into my schedule again. And we have short days, long nights in winter in the Northern hemisphere so, you know, it's constant recalibration all the time. Yeah, it's good. I, I believe a man should only run if something's chasing him. That's just my opinion on running. <laughs> I, I know you're also a bicyclist and a, and a boating man. So that's, I think the bee yeah. hobbies uh, are the good hobbies for us, myself. You, you, don't, you don't burn uh, a lot of calories. Well, I guess you would if you canoed. We have a canoe, but boat, I, yeah. I prefer the Sea Ray. I prefer my, uh, <laughs> my little bow rider. That things that things enjoy, yeah. But you know, so yeah, I'm in it like everybody else. Yeah, you mentioned later in the book. Uh, I've got a quote written down. Nobody will ever ask you to accomplish your top priorities. They will only ask you to accomplish theirs. I, that that quote set me up straight. That, that was absolutely true. 
somewhere in that same part of the book, Kerry, you mentioned that you have 11 inboxes. Now, <laughs> when I first read that, my, my first thought was, well, Kerry has a fairly complex thing going on. But at some point, you challenged us to add up our inboxes and darn it if I don't have nine of them. You have like, nine. Congratulations. Nine. Way to go. When I first heard inbox, I thought literal email inbox on my yeah. Mac. But of course, what you mean is any way that someone can get a hold of me. Yes. T- talk to us about that. Well, that's it. It's omni-channel communication, right? So I remember when Instagram was just a picture sharing site. I was an early when and there was what there was Instagram and Hipstagram. Like this is fun for anybody who remembers that. I had them both, and then Hipstagram died, and Instagram became what we know today. Were you and, a uh, when you had Hipstagram? Oh uh, yes, have... very. Just ask my kids. No, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> they would say, and anybody who knows me would say yeah, you were not a hipster. I would have liked um, to seen a picture if you were a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> Want to be? No, didn't yeah. work out. So, um, but I remember when they added an inbox and I'm like, oh my gosh, like at first it was just a picture sharing site, right? And it was fun. And you could actually didn't have an endless scroll. Like you would scroll down. Some people remember this, you are caught up. And I'm like, awesome, I'm caught up. Well, guess what? You can scroll until you die now. I I imagine there's a bottom. I haven't hit it in years. And then, and then there's, um, (laughs) yeah, I'm going to look at Instagram right now. The algorithm might change, but there are in my inbox, primary, general, yeah. And then message requests. I yeah. have uh, 99 plus message requests. I hate to tell people. I don't know how they get in there. I don't even look at them. I can't. And then I have Facebook and I've got LinkedIn. Every time I open up LinkedIn, which my team usually runs, there's like 300 unread messages. Yeah. And so I got I to gotta pick like, okay, I have a private email. I have a public email. Always said I was never going to be that guy. I would read everything that came to me. Dude, I'm I'm not good at reading a thousand things a day and producing content and podcasting and writing books and speaking. I can't do it. I just can't do it. So I had to put limits in. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of inbound. And then um, thank goodness, since the book was released, which like a month after At Your Best released, uh, <laughs> Apple did something, I think made it in the final draft, which I'm like, wouldn't it be great if we could just screen out certain people in different modes or whatever? Well, they introduced focus mode on iOS 15, which is the best thing ever because now you can program your day so that, you know, in the morning, my wife and Steve get through. That's it. In the afternoon, my staff get through. In the evening, my kids get through or whatever. But you can you can actually program it so that you can see the important messages that really have to get through and ignore everyone else. The only uh, the other way you used to be able to do it is just your favorites would get through and that's how I programmed it for years. Wow. But you know, my favorites are not needy people. They don't call me every two minutes. So it's it's a way of of living without distraction. And I think we got to figure that out, right? The the lost art of just being together with your family, um, being out on the boat, uh, barbecuing and not worrying about Instagramming it all the time. Although I do that a lot. And and um, going for a run without feeling like you have to consume content or respond to people or stop because somebody called you. I think that's really important. You know, solitude, spiritual disciplines, solitude and godliness are pretty connected. And we don't we don't get solitude anymore. So yeah, that's my battle with the inbox. Yeah. And we don't get solitude because we don't carve it out, right? You're not talking like we're a victim of a busy culture. Um, I'm just looking through some of the quotes here. I've, I've had you 
Yeah, time off won't heal you when the problem is how you spend your time on. That's one of your great statements about that. Mm. Stop saying I don't have time and start admitting you didn't make the time. You're intentionally shutting off avenues of communication uh, throughout the course yes. of your week? Yep. Every yeah. day I shut down communication. And it sounds weird. I mean, we do have, uh, we're blessed to, I think leaders access our content almost 2 million times a month now. So it's insane. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of inbound. But like if I'm going to do what I am called to do, which is to help leaders connect the dots and bring the best of the business world to the church, church to the business world, help people thrive in life and leadership, that's sort of the essence of what I do. That doesn't happen when I'm constantly responding to other people's agenda. Craig Rochelle, he said it this way. He said, um, you know, people say God has a wonderful plan for your life. He says other people have a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> and he's so right. He's like, everybody's got a plan for my life and it may have nothing to do with what I am truly called to do. And so, you know, the way I look at it, I think the way I said it in the book was try it. Just shut off your phone like John Mark Comer does. Like just don't even... I was talking to one of his colleagues. We were working on a project together and I'm like, yeah, John Mark's on sabbatical and I I don't have his number. He goes, dude, nobody has his number. Like he's Mm -hmm. just gone. And this is one of his best friends. He's just gone for six months. Like try that. And you know what? He's going to be okay. He's, he's going to live just fine without the world. I will live just fine without the world for six hours. I don't sleep with my phone by my bed. This is the basement of my house. So I, I sleep with it charging down here. And people are like, well, what about your alarm clock? I have something called an alarm clock. I've heard about that. That I rarely use. You've heard about those? I've heard about an alarm. It's like a rectangular thing with weird buttons and a mm-hmm. hard to program. Mm-hmm. It's like program? 20 bucks, man. It's super oh, easy. So yeah. I have an alarm clock, uh, which I rarely use unless I have to catch a flight. Because I just sleep till my body wakes up, and uh, and you know people are like, well, what if there's an emergency? It's like the police will knock that lock, knock at my door. The firefighters will show up. I will find out, and we can discover that in the morning. You're living parts of every day like you're back in the 1980s. That's what you're describing. Is I am. You're, you're living in the 21st century during business hours, and you're basically part, partly Amish speaking of hipster, overnight. Well, and that's where the thinking happens. It doesn't happen when you're continually distracted. Cal Newport, you know, blessed a lot of us with deep work. Deep work, And he makes the argument that um, deep thinking, deep work is a new superpower because it's so scarce. And people are so distracted. We live in the shallows. We live in shallow work, shallow theology. You know, one of the untold stories, do you have a lot of church leaders listening to this? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions I'm asking is, why did so many people go away during the pandemic? I wonder if it had something to do with shallow theology. I know nobody's really naming that. They're talking about habits and everything. But, you know, if we were really waiting, and I'm, I'm listen, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I'm not claiming to be a deep theologian. But, you know, we really, I, I, was, I was messaging someone today. I do, you know, communicate selectively. And we were talking about AI, like uh, what are Christians saying about AI? And this is a respected thought leader. And I'm like, I have been trying to find a Christian speaking intelligently into artificial intelligence and the theology and the ethics and the philosophy about it. I want to interview them on my podcast. And we're conspicuously absent from that sphere and a little bit from Web3. And I'm, I'm concerned about that. And I think to really, to think well, to live well, to breathe to feel, <laughs> you know, even your soul, 
that requires some undistracted thought. And and I'm pro- I probably have ADD. So I'm even like the worst poster child for this. I was with uh, my grown kids uh last week. We spent some time together on vacation in California, and my oldest just said to me, he said, "Okay, we're driving around just running errands." He goes, "Dad." He says, "You really have ADD." I'm like, "What do you mean?" Like he says, "I know you've said that for years and you've joked about it, but he's like it's you real. probably totally, I looked at the symptoms and it explains your life. And he goes, it makes me feel a lot better about you as a dad. I'm like, well, thank you. I appreciate that, Jordan. <laughs> and he goes, no, all of a sudden I have some empathy for you. So it is really hard for me to focus. And, you know, I don't need the internet to not focus. I, I am struggling with that in any moment as a kid. You can talk to my mom and she'll say, you know, you're the kid who couldn't pay attention in church. You're the kid who's always shaking the pew with your leg because it's going up and down. You're the, you're the person who, who just can't focus on anything. And so, it, yeah, it's a lifetime challenge for me. Let's talk about this multiple inboxes and all of the people wanting, uh, like, I think that's a common leadership experience, regardless of oh, the huge. size. Yeah, of- it doesn't matter. 200 people, it's an issue. Uh, I, I know for me, there's an inherent politeness and courtesy that believes that I must respond to everybody who wants something from me. And that's absolutely uh, the path to death. And, you know, to your point with your book, it's the path to an unproductive life. Can you take us back to those early years when you started letting people down in, in that sense? They want something from you and you just realize you can't give it to them. What was it like for you internally? So the, the principle that I had to learn the hard way is I believe that it was my response. And I started with um, 40 people. Adding all three churches I served together, there were 40 people on a good day. And that was being exaggerated with the counting. So I can care for 40 people. That's not hard. I know their names and everything. And as our church grew, and it grew fairly quickly, I started to get overwhelmed. And I had the false belief that I had to care for everybody. In the same way I cared for those 40 people, I had to care for 140, 240, 440, 840, 1440. And it's like, you know, you you eventually just implode. And so uh, it took took a long time, but I realized, oh, I don't need to create a church where I care for everybody. I need to create a church where everyone is cared for. And there's a difference in that because people think very small churches, 30 people, 20 people, uh, I remember people saying, well, you know, we don't want to get too big because everybody knows everybody. And I'm like, yeah. okay, so you see that person over there. What is her name? Right. Oh, well, I don't know that person. Right. They right. don't know. It's 30 right. people. It's like, you don't know her name. I know her name. You don't know her name. And and I kind of realized you don't, you don't want a church where everybody knows everybody because we don't have that. And we only have 30 people. We We need a church where everyone is known. So the answer to that, for me, rightly or wrongly, people can come up with their own reasons or decisions is um, I want to create an environment where everyone is cared for. So I may not personally respond to everyone. And we do have selective channels of communication, but my email is public. My public email is public. It's carry at carrynewhoff.com. You do not have to look very hard to find it. So I might not be on message requests and Instagram, but if anybody wanted to spend two minutes trying to figure out how to get a hold of me, it's not that hard. And so what I do is I have staff who basically spend a lot of the day responding to all the requests that come in. And I want those to be incredible experiences, not like the bad customer experience we all hate. We want to err on the side of generosity. If there's a problem, we want to make it right. If if there's a misunderstanding, we want to deal with it. And we hire emotionally intelligent people who are really good at dealing with conflict. I'm sure we drop the ball from time to time. But the idea is that everybody gets 
an answer? Who needs an answer? And um, so we just hire for that. And then I can focus on the communication where I am best positioned to add value. So if somebody else can add value, that's great. If not, um, I will do it. And, and I believe in Andy Stanley's do for one what you wish you could do mm-hmm. for everyone. So sometimes I'll just randomly call someone who emailed the public inbox and say, let's talk for 10 minutes. I don't do that very often, but I'll do it. Or I'll do an event that I wouldn't normally do um, because it's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'll just do it. I'll help out. So that keeps you in touch and grounded. But that's how I kind of sort through the inbox mania. And then so mostly the people who are talking to me are really good friends and staff members, key staff members. Yeah. Okay. Let, let me take you back before you had staff uh, filtering your email and you were getting it all. Did you have a situation where you would simply delete and not even reply? Uh, like, like were there times where someone wants something and you just a quick email saying, sorry, I can't do that. Or you actually just didn't even respond. I don't remember never responding. Okay. It might've happened once or twice. I mean, that, yeah, that was yeah, a long sure. time ago. I went yeah. to the split inbox over a decade ago. I had a r- bunch of really good teachers in the form of books. So I'd read The Purpose Driven Life back in the 90s. Um, I have thanked Warren Bird and Carl George innumerable times for how to break church growth barriers because I got that as a 32, 33-year-old pastor and I read it. So early on, I was realizing this is a systems issue. This is a yeah. systems issue. This does not scale beyond 200 people. Oh my gosh, we're at 100 people. Oh, we're at 130. The system is about to break. So I think systematically, I think organizationally. And so even as a young leader, I'm like, this isn't about me and you. This is about finding a system to scale. And I had a lot of missteps at first because I was Presbyterian in background. I'm like, oh, we'll get the elders to do pastoral care. And I remember... <laughs> bring that up at an elders meeting. And they were like, ah, no, we're on strike. We're never doing that. And I'm like, okay, well, so much for that. And small groups were starting to emerge. And, uh, you know, we tried to build really healthy teams. And so between small groups and healthy teams, serving teams, you know, we were able to care for the people we wanted to be cared for. But yeah, where the no's showed up. uh, And then I began to scale. I hired a good assistant and she started to do the, I had a private email and yeah. then a public email. Yeah. So she would handle all the the non-difficult stuff and then I would jump in on the the conflict. Um so those were some of the 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 scaling things that we did and um but you know, I mean I still had clingy hands. It was really hard for us to go from 800 to 1000 yeah. and that was because it wasn't that I was trying to interact with the public, but I still wanted input on almost everything the staff was dealing with and so yeah. too many decisions had to cross my desk. And I needed to let that go. And when I let go, it grew even more. So I've learned to be uncontrolling. Yeah. Still learning. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, the magic of the book, I think, Carrie, is the way you really focus on energy management. And mm-hmm. I think one of the most hopeful things you write in there is I, I think it, there can be a tendency for some kinds of people to look at what they would consider highly productive people and say, well, they just have a ton of energy through the day, you're making a case that pretty much every human with rare exception has three to five hours a day of highly productive time. Talk to us yeah. about that. One of, the, one of the titles I wanted to call the book was The Three-Hour Workday with apologies <laughs> to Tim Ferriss, but it, yeah. it didn't work. No, honestly, I think that is a very sad reality. So in the time leading up to my burnout, that first decade of leadership, I really believe that I was a robot. I believe sleep was for weak people. I believe that I had 12 or 18 hours in me a day. And some of that was really unhealthy. Uh, Well, a lot of that was really unhealthy. 
But I thought I'll outwork you, I'll outsmart you, I'll outhustle you, and that will be how we do this. Hmm. And then one day my body went on strike and I burned out and I didn't clear a, declare a finish line, so my body did. And it was a brutal six months. And on the way back, I really, because I worked on time management and there's a bit of time management in the book, but like yeah. you said, the problem with time management is I was decent at time management when I burned out. But you're managing a fixed commodity and when you get good at it, it brings diminishing returns because it doesn't deal with the amount of inbound. So if your church grows from 150 to 300 people tomorrow, your inbound doubles, if, if not goes up 300% because yeah. they all have friends. And all of a sudden, you're the thing. You're the flavor of the month, right? So there was that. Um, and then I started to really focus on my energy because, of course, when you're burned out, you have no energy for anything. But then as my energy came back, I'm like, gosh, I'm really best in the mornings. And what I should be doing is doing what I'm best at when I'm at my best. And so what I, I narrowed my focus, because you know, when, you, when you're starting with a handful of people, you're responsible for everything. You're yeah. washing dishes after a meal. You're setting up chairs. You're turning the heat on. You're cleaning the toilet. You're um, doing all the pastoral care, the weddings, the funerals, the whole deal. You're the jack of all trades, master of none. And I did, I did the, the marketing for our church. I thought I was brilliant at marketing. Turns out I was terrible. But um, when I finally met marketers, but hey, it was better than what they had. And then what I realized as, as the church grew, and this is actually true in my company now too, I'm really not good at most of what we do. I'm good at talking, writing, vision casting. It's about it. And so it was five things for me that I started to focus on as things started to grow. Uh, so let's use a church context. Am I preaching well and faithfully? Are the sermons really connecting? Because that hour on Sunday just has, I don't think it's the only thing church should do, but it just has a disproportionate impact. Bad preaching will not grow a church and will not reach people. So I have to have to be producing great series, great sermons. Second thing, I have to make sure the vision is crystal clear. It's hard to motivate people when you don't know where you're going. Third thing, I want to make sure our staff are aligned. Is everyone aligned and our key volunteers aligned around the mission? Fourth, what's our culture like? Is it toxic? Is it healthy? Is it a malaise? Like healthy culture? And then finally, money. We just need money in the bank so we can do what we're called to do and don't have to turn the lights out. And if I was five for five, our church did great. If I started to let those things slide, our church would struggle. And so what I found is for me as a morning person, those three to five hours in the morning, if I could spend them mostly on sermon writing, developing my communication craft, and uh, making sure the team was aligned and the elders were all on board and all that stuff, that if I did that, everything else took care of itself. Mm. And I didn't have to worry. If we were healthy at the top, we were healthy at the bottom. And if we were unhealthy or divided at the top or conflicted or there was a malaise at the top, it had a way of percolating through the whole body through through thousands of people and you know so i'm like okay just keep your eye on those five things and use your best time to do those things and i found that with my company too you know at first it was just me then it was me and an assistant and now we have eight staff and i don't know most of what goes on in my company i don't understand it if it broke i couldn't fix it but like my job is to keep everyone aligned uh, to write great content or facilitate great content increasingly i'm facilitating rather than just writing and originating everything. And uh, to make sure we are aligned around our mission, vision, and strategy, that our culture as a staff is healthy. Because you know what? If you have that horrible flight attendant 
chances are she's not a terrible person or he's not a terrible person. They just have a bad boss or they work for a bad airline. And so if I'm a bad boss, that is going to leak down into customer service. That's going to leak down into the way my team treats all the people that they interact with. And they interact with 10x the people, 100x the people that I interact with. So, you know, I got to keep that that healthy. And then I have to make sure there's money in the bank. Otherwise, we got to close up shop and go home. Yeah. So you call this most productive time the green zone. What I really appreciate is you also dedicate as much time to what you call the yellow zone and the red zone, uh, where these aren't just wasted hours. You're not saying that we only do things three to five hours a day. You're actually giving us a, a great path to redeem all our waking hours, but to be really strategic about um, how we use them. And what I, I learned a couple of things about you, Kerry, that just we'll do this rapid fire before we get sure. to the moment of anxiety. You have a hostile or at least a suspicious relationship with breakfast meetings. Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> yeah. So the green, yellow, red thing is pretty simple. Everyone gets it intuitively. And that seems to be the the, the game changer for leaders as they get into this matrix. Um, green is when you're at your best, your energy is sharp, you're feeling awesome, the ideas flow easily. And that's about three to five hours a day. And that's actually borne out statistically, scientifically these days. Red zone is the opposite. It's those two or three hours a day, maybe an hour a day, where you're like, oh, I'm going to fall asleep in this meeting, or I just need a nap, or I need to go for a run. Um, for me, that's four to six in the afternoon, kind of a dead zone for me. And then yellow is everything in between. Yellow is just you're not at your best, you're not at your worst. And so there's a lot of yellow. And yellow is actually very productive time, but not for your best ideas. So what I, what I used to do until maybe seven, eight years ago is I was the king of breakfast meetings. So again, I'm a morning person. I got to write a sermon. I got to write a book. Uh, if I go for a breakfast meeting, you know how it goes. You don't get anything done before the breakfast meeting other than your devotions. You meet at the restaurant at 7. It goes till 8.30, even though it was supposed to be done at 8. Um, then you decide, oh, I better get a coffee, head to a drive through go to your coffee shop. Then you get into the office. Everybody starts talking to you. Then you look at your phone. You've got eight texts. And then you open your inbox. You got 25 emails. Next thing you know, it's lunch. Then you get pulled back in after lunch. It's like, hey, can you go to this meeting? Well, I wasn't scheduled. Yeah, but we need you. And then, hey, can I have five minutes of your time? Can I pick your brain on this? Can you help me with this? Then you look at your phone. Again, it's blown up. And then it's four o'clock. And what have you gotten done? Nothing. So the idea is just protect your green zone. Like don't schedule meetings. Don't allow people to interrupt it. Put your devices away. And do your most important work, what you're best at, when you're at your best. So for me, when I started, like I was, I would, you know, when I was doing this as a lead pastor, I would have my sermon series finished before it started. I would work four to six weeks ahead. It takes you a year to get there. Yeah. But you know, if you're not teaching, then write a series and I would be done. The creative team would have everything they want. This, these two weeks that I'm preaching on in January, they'll be done before Christmas hits and they will have everything. The graphics will be finished. Why? Because guess what? Everybody communicates better when it's not last minute. And then if you got to change, it's like, oh, you know what? I rethought that. I kind of blew it. I should use this or I should use that. Well, then you got two weeks to go back and, and tweak it and fix it. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's the secret. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, it was really helpful. I appreciated like looking at my rhythm. It's actually very similar to yours. Just I, you made a good point to say everyone's is different. But I have that same kind of rhythm that you do. The early morning to the, to the late morning is my best creative time. I love how you really helped us look at exercise, yellow zone, red zone. 
The other surprising thing, Kerry, is that this is a life-saving book. You give us very concrete advice on when to engage an anesthesiologist. And I think more importantly, what time of the day to schedule your colonoscopy. So give <laughs> us a little on that as we wrap up and get into the gauntlet here. Well, thank, uh, thank Daniel Pink for that one. But yeah, he wrote a really great book called When? Uh, the Science of Perfect Timing. And one of the things that really shocked me, because we, we think of you know, professionals like doctors or surgeons or anesthesiologists as being superhuman. And they have the same problems we do. So when you look at, and I've read medical studies as well as Daniel's book on this, and Dan says in his book that, you know, I, th- I forget the exact stat, but basically if you have a colonoscopy at 8 a.m., the error rate is a quarter of what it is at 4 p.m. So they will detect far more of what's wrong with you in the morning than they will at four o'clock because they have a red zone too. And surgeries have a much higher incidence of mistakes and post-op infections if they happen in the afternoon. So if you're going for surgery or a delicate procedure, please ask for the first morning slot. (laughs) It's funny, when I was a hospital chaplain, that was like the best known secret in the hospital is some of the surgeons would start at 5.36 a.m., uh, and and patients would complain like I have to get to the hospital at four a.m. and we're like you that's what you want you want to be you you want to be there <laughs> you want to be number one first first person on the docket because yeah like you said everyone's human especially when it's medical residents doing these insane uh, insane hours oh, yeah also twenty hour shifts the opportunity to quote uh, the late George Carlin the stand up comic he had a routine called uh, people I could live without. And, uh, <laughs> One of them, one of the people he could live with that was a nearsighted proctologist. That's always... (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, Kerry, as you know, on on this podcast, we like to just spend a few minutes getting under the surface and what we playfully call our gauntlet of anxiety questions. You've survived the gauntlet once before. I'm I'm sure this will be uh, no trouble for you. But let's dig into a couple of things. Uh, in, In your leadership, give us one area where you keep running into yourself where you you wish maybe you'd be further along by now in a character trait or a way that you show up. My willingness to say yes to things I should say no to. I love that, especially based on what we just talked about. That's a great answer. Mm -hmm. No, there's a whole section in the book about like how to say no. And I'm like, I am taking notes for myself because I still want to say yes to almost everything. I feel guilty when I say no. And I don't know what to do with that. But and, And my staff are often putting the brakes on when I won't. So, you know... I think I'm a seven out of 10 on that. And what I find is when I get better at it, things continue to grow and develop. But it's, it's that FOMO. It's, it's perhaps the remnants of a, a scarcity mindset, even though I think I'm abundance in my wiring. So yeah, I'd say that's it. That's great. You know, we all with our family of origin, I think we all get into adulthood with assets from our family of origin and also liabilities. Quite often they seem to be the, the two sides of the same coin. Does anything come to mind for you that you would say is either an asset and a liability or, oh, here was the thing that I got from my family of origin that was amazing and here's one that I've had to work on? 
So asset and liability, definitely work ethic. Um, come from two immigrants. My mom came over with her parents. My dad came over as a 19-year-old, both from Holland. They met here, got married here in Canada. And um, they were hustlers. They are. I mean, they're in their 80s now, 79 and 81. But like, I watched them build a business. I saw my dad, you know, literally proverbial story, shows up with 20 bucks in his pocket mm-hmm. and figures out a way in a new country where he doesn't speak the language. And, you know, you think about Dutch heritage, like a third of Holland is reclaimed from the sea. So it's like those people (laughs) never stop, right? So I don't know whether that's genetic or cultural or what it is. But yeah, I've always been like a hustler. And of course, it, it led me to a brick wall when I was 41 where I burned out. And so what I've had to do in people say it, it's it's like, there was a performance anxiety that uh, developed in me when I was a child that if I performed well, if I brought home a good report card, I started to equate that with love. And I don't think my parents ever meant it that way, but like, you know, performance equals affection. And so I became a performance addict and it really reached its miserable bottom in my thirties where nothing was good enough. But what it, what, what it leads me to now is I still have a lingering, you know, I, I, I don't work as many hours. I think I work hard, but I don't work as many hours as I did 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and actually accomplish a lot more. So that's good. But there is this fear, and I tell my wife, Tony, about it, and she just laughs. She's like, stop saying that. I feel like I'm lazy. I feel like I, I have this, this irrational fear of just being a lazy person mm. who accomplishes nothing with his life. So there's probably something under there. And it's not like I want to be famous. It's not like, you know, like I'm, I'm, I've succeeded beyond anything I ever thought was possible. So I'm yeah. not, it's not like I'm like, oh, one day. Yeah. No, it's like this is pretty incredible. But there is this, this fear of idleness that mm. probably needs unpacking. Yeah. Oh, I love that answer. Similarly related, I think, is the, the inner critic that we all carry. And, uh, you know, my work in anxiety is a huge piece is, is learning to believe the good news of God over the voice of condemnation that can be in your head. When you fall short of your own standards, uh, when you have a standard for yourself and you're like, oh, I didn't do that well, what's the message that your inner critic says to you? I think increasingly it's better than it used to be. It would have been, oh, you failed. You don't amount to anything. And I think years of therapy and prayer have gotten rid of that voice. What I hear is, oh, don't worry. It'll be okay. Like you've, you, you've got this figured out. And then later I'll be like, wow, you blew that opportunity. Like you, you, you could have, it could have been so much more. And if you would have just done it this way or that way, I probably hear it, but it's not instant anymore. So it's acceptance, but then comes the asterisk. Then comes the, yeah, but you should have done it differently. Yeah. yeah, you could have been smarter. Yeah, you should have tried harder. So that's still there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of us experience a gap between what we believe about God and what we encounter from God. Hmm. Um, I, three of the gaps, I, I believe God's with me, but I don't always see it. I believe God loves me, but I don't always feel it. And then I think a common gap for people is, I thought I'd be further along by now. Do you have any gaps uh, for you between your belief and your encounter with God right now? Yeah, actually, you know, uh, uh, reading the scripture this year, I, I do the Bible in one year, every year, have for years. And 
it really hit me. I mean, I've preached this stuff for years, but I think I still deep down, if you go into the basement below the basement, there's probably a work salvation there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't believe that. If you ask me, how are we saved? We're saved by faith through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and all that. But there's a, Hey, look at me. I'm doing pretty good. Right? Like there's that. And uh, there was a verse in Timothy, I forget which one, I didn't commit it to memory, but it was just like, you know, it's almost a version of what Paul says, where he says, it's not, it's by um, grace, not by works that anyone should boast. And I know that one, but it just hit me in Timothy. And it was basically saying there was nothing you could do to earn your salvation. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Yes, there was, (laughs) you know, and it's like, oh, oh, that's ugly. Where does that go? So I think latent, like, you know, there's patent defects things that are obvious, latent defects, things you can't see. I think that's a latent defect in my theology. Uh, I love, yeah, it's a great way to frame it too, Kerry. I, I, I'm doing some work right now on just the reality of Western culture. Can, can any of us actually rest in grace in such a works-based culture? Like we're so formed, right, by our culture. So I love that, that that's, that's where you're taking mm. us because I think that's a common gap. Yeah, and some of that probably is culture because, you know, if your definition of success is more, you need a new definition. And if you look at our culture's definition of success, it's always more. It's like, well, more of whatever. Yeah. You got a nice house, but you need more. You have some money, but you need more. You have some success, but you need more. You yeah. have some followers, but you need more. You have some campuses, but you need more. Mm, more isn't bad, but yeah. it's a terrible motivator. Right. The like tyranny, terrible motivation. Yeah. The tyranny of must have more is bad. More is great, but must have more is deadly, I guess. Yeah. It's a good articulation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'm intentionally being provocative, but I'm actually going to make the case, I think, in my next book that um, it's harder for us to follow Jesus than it was for Paul. Ah. Because, uh, because of the culture. Like P- Paul's conversion journey, obviously we're on video. People can't see this. But C- Paul's conversion journey was actually quite short. He went from monotheistic, legalistic God to monotheistic, you know, God of grace. But he, God was still his sovereign from the day of his birth. We're taking the journey from I'm the center of my own universe all the way to God's the king and sovereign. That's a bigger journey. Oh, I can't wait uh, to read that book. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's been another like malingering thing. Of course, I'm the center of my own universe. Right, right. You 15, know, and, 15, and, and that's awful. A day. It's not good theology, but that's yeah. how we are. And you do you and, you know. Yeah. 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 Well, final question. Uh, when lately in your life uh, have you felt most fully and completely loved? What happened? Oh, we were on a canoe trip this summer and uh, we were out with my kids and there was a little bit of conflict between me and one of my sons. And he was in one canoe, I was in the other. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're five hours off the grid and we're there for a few days together. And he just looked at me and he said, Dad, you're in. Like, I love you. There is nothing you could ever do that would take my love for you away. And it just cracked me open. Yeah. So then. That's, that's a wrap right there, Carrie. That's, hmm. that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Uh, let, let me just say. Uh, sorry, I'm emotional thinking I, about it. It was I really just, good. I did not want to step on what just happened. So hmm. uh, I know you're a former radio man, but we just needed a couple of moments of silence there. That was beautiful. And I, I just I just wish to say you have been a delightful force of encouragement in my life, just personally. So thank you for that. And thanks for coming on the show. 
I can't say enough good about this book, uh, folks, at your best. It's going to save your life, not just because you can schedule your proctologist, but but (laughs) the way Kerry has harnessed the lens of energy management and given us the most practical tools. So Kerry, thanks for your time. Thanks for this book. And uh, man, bless you and your endeavors. And yeah, look forward Mm. to the next time we bump into each other. Bless you, Steve. Thank you for all that you do for leaders. You're helping so many people, myself included, so many of my friends. Just really excited for this next season of your life, too. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 